That was 25 chapters of description and commentary over 30-something episodes of Book 1, Part 1 of War and Peace. Questions that are raised are, what stood out? Who were you introduced to? And based on the text, if this is your first time picking up the book, will you continue on the path of what is generally regarded as one of the great pieces of literature? Thus far, the setting has been the warm weather months and early autumn of St. Petersburg, Moscow, and Smolensk in 1805. The large cities you're likely familiar with were focused on in approximately the first 20 chapters, and the countryside of Smolensk in the last five. At the time, Russia was ruled by Emperor Alexander. He took power in 1801 after his father, Paul, or Pavel, was murdered in his bedchamber, an assassination likely directed by nobility who, among other things, detested Paul's reforms, giving more rights to the peasants. Alexander died in 1825, so he reigned during the Napoleonic Wars, which was both a chaotic and profound quarter century. The time leading up to 1805 was also one where Russia and Austria were staunch allies. Both were ruled by monarchs and considered empires. And out of the Revolution of France eventually came the French Republic and Napoleon. And ultimately, it was Napoleon that various governments, including Austria and Russia, formed various and expansive military coalitions to fight. Napoleon embodied a sense of a new era, one where nation-states threatened European monarchies that had lasted for centuries. Napoleon embodied that age because he was able to rise through merit and ability from the designation of ensign to emperor. In short, he had a very keen understanding of logistics, artillery, and leadership in general. So it was an age where it was possible to overthrow entire social systems. And the men marching for him were fighting for more than just a noble or monarch. They felt they were fighting for a better future for themselves and the concept of country that we now take for granted. For Alexander, the position of czar came completely by birthright and also a fortuitous murder. And even though the czar will continue to rule until 1917, there is also an age that is fading away. It's one embodied by the character of Kirill Bezukhov, who was the wealthiest count in the land, who owned millions of acres and tens of thousands of serfs, many of whom you'll learn are in modern-day Ukraine. Importantly, in 1805, there was a knowledge or a sense that the age of serfdom was declining, even though it ultimately took until the early 1860s to officially end serfdom. Prince Andrei's father, Nikolai Bolkonsky, is another fictional but very symbolic figure of a grand era heralded by Catherine the Great, whose people are dying away. Catherine ruled for 34 years, 1761 to 1796, and she had a Germanic background. She grew up in Poland as German nobility and heir to the Prussian throne. In historical terms, she is known for the country's expansion, both westward and south, picking up what was formerly Polish territory, as well as areas north of the Black Sea, basically land that was Ottoman territory, as well as Cossack, or what could be considered ethnically Ukrainian territory. 
she was responsible for abolishing the Cossack state, or Hetmanet, or in Ukrainian, Hetmanshtina, an action which breeded resentment then that still surfaces today. The descendants of Cossack military officers that you will find referenced by Tolstoy formed some of the foundations for the national identity of Ukrainians. Fast forward to when Napoleon is defeated, the emperor was accompanied into foreign territory by his famously colorful Cossack guard. They were dressed in ways Western Europe were quite impressed and even bemused by. It's fair to say that the Cossacks of that time, they thought they would be treated more as allies of the emperor and Russian government. But as time proceeded, their rights continued to be severely restricted and they became more subjects and were eventually eliminated as a military order. But from traveling westward in this conflict, the Cossacks were exposed to the concept of nationhood and true citizenship, and a seed was planted, ironically in some ways, by their adversary, Napoleon. Now, Catherine was regarded as a westward-looking empress by European intelligentsia. Catherine developed quite the friendly correspondence with the French philosopher Voltaire. She wrote to him in an unsolicited letter in 1768 that she was a great admirer of his works. She asked his thoughts on a state as large as hers. Voltaire seems to have responded over a year later, noting that although he had received many letters over the years, none from someone as powerful as Catherine. In a brief correspondence, he noted his thoughts might disappoint Catherine and addressed his concerns to Catherine's people and their rights. Voltaire expressed that in his opinion, all men are born free and society puts them in chains and therefore society must set them free. He seems to be addressing himself to the serfs, whose rights Catherine severely limited. Voltaire expressed that such rights must be guaranteed by monarchs. This started quite the long correspondence, with Catherine writing next that Voltaire's words were fascinating, and that she would like to try to offer people more freedoms, but she feared what they would do with such freedoms and enlightened ideas. She noted Russia only became European, in the time of Peter the Great, which was less than a hundred years before that correspondence. And then she asks, can democracy successfully rule a country? In Voltaire's next letter, from Paris in 1770, he famously called Catherine an enlightened despot, and that it was her responsibility to educate her people and work towards getting them ready for democracy. In that vein, Catherine did start an educational system that was modeled on Europe's system, it was an initiative, but in general only those from more privileged classes would receive the education. But it did begin to open education to more people, and a major change was that education was separated from church-operated instruction. During Catherine's reign, Russia's traditional allies were Austria and France, the latter who will be the chief adversary in this book. Significant rivals included Prussia, Poland, and the Ottomans. Poland was definitely a weakened kingdom without definite boundaries, and it was coveted by neighbors including Prussia and Russia. So one may ask, what was the need for all those serfs who were eventually freed? The economy was 95% agriculture, and serfdom was widespread, including area that you would understand as Ukrainian territory, which then, as it is now, 
was a breadbasket for other countries. Ukraine, as a place rich in grain, was recognized thousands of years earlier by the Greeks, who set up colonies to import grains and cereal to Athens and other major cities. Well into Catherine's reign, there was hardly a free peasant or farmer that could be found. And for clarification, the term serf in the Russian Empire means unfree farmer or peasant. The serfs were subject to ownership and direction by nobles, military commanders, and civil servants. To get a bit more specific, Tolstoy is writing the novel at a time where serfdom was just previously abolished by Emperor's Decree in 1861. The novel itself started coming out in 1867. So he's looking back at a system he knew to be, with the virtue of hindsight, on the way out. He's comparing that age with the one that came to replace it. Catherine's time was both an expansion of borders and an expansion of serfdom. The age of serfdom itself is generally regarded between 1649 and 1861. One of the major factors ending serfdom was Russia's shocking loss in the Crimean War from 1853 to 56. Tolstoy served in that war which enabled him to write his battlefield scenes with a transcendent competence. This loss showed Russia to be far less the great power than they believed they were. In the Crimean War, Russia lost to the Ottomans as well as their allies France and England. Russia proved to be lacking in technology and infrastructure. Their European allies could supply and resupply their troops with resources including food and weapons by railroad. Russians essentially experienced being blockaded in Crimea and were actually dying of starvation by the hundreds and even thousands per day. Russia was way behind in terms of industrialization. So leadership eventually realized serfdom would have to end. This was a relatively unskilled workforce that could be better used in industrialized efforts. But in Catherine's time, she would give large tracts of land and I mean the size of states or countries, to favored nobles like Count Bezikov to administer. This was the basis of the economic system where what would be harvested would be used in the empire and also exported. Serfdom was the dominant relationship in Tsarist Russia between nobles and peasants. As reference, this idea of absolute monarchy and nobility supported by serfs was giving way to more Western or European values. It can be argued that Napoleon was spearheading such efforts, or as Tolstoy might put it, there were new ideas and mass movements of men that inevitably led to such change. Book 1, Part 1, effectively introduces this dynamic. We're brought to grand parties where Russian nobles and French exiles vehemently complain about how their way of life is under attack. We get a sense of salon culture, where privileged women would gather and discuss their view of current events, like how Napoleon was a scoundrel and how it was up to the emperor and God to save Europe from that malevolent force. And throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, when Russian nobles would speak to each other, they would predominantly do so in the French language they were much more bound to the privileged classes in Europe than those who supported society by working the land and feeding them. 
Many Americans who pick up the book will be quite shocked to learn that it was French that was spoken in the Russian court. Much of this novel is in fact written in French, so it's been translated into English from both Russian and French. This is an aspect of history that Russia is not proud to promote. Speaking of language, it's also interesting that the chief adversary of the book, Napoleon, didn't speak French as his first language. He was born in Corsica, which had long been a Genoese possession since the 13th century, and for a brief time before Napoleon was born was an independent republic from 1755 to 69. In that significant year Napoleon was actually born, 1769, France effectively secured control of the island. So he spoke Corsican and Italian and started learning French around 10 years of age. So the French Republic becomes embodied by a Corsican who spoke French as basically a third language. And Russian aristocracy using French for as long as they did was a sign that they wanted to be and could be a forward-looking and Western country. In any event, the first 25 chapters of War and Peace highlight a lot of the peace or tranquil times before an oncoming war. But even in times of peace, Tolstoy is pointing out that human nature, given what it is, there is always war on the horizon. And Tolstoy also seems to get at especially with the conversations between the religiously devoted Maria and her brother, Prince Andrei, that there is always an inner battle of war and peace, which in order to prevail, one must avail oneself and follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. In the first few chapters, war seems very far away, but it gets closer and closer, and as part one ends, Prince Andrei heads off to war. And Tolstoy correctly points out that the prevailing view preceding Napoleon's great victories in Austria was that any war at this time wouldn't amount to much. Maybe some skirmishes, but basically a dog and pony show of militaries marching around. It was believed that the powerful coalition set up to counter Napoleon would be successful in containing him. And the fictional but very symbolic younger main characters of Tolstoy's novel do see something transcendent about Napoleon. Pierre starts out idolizing him, even play-acting where he plays the role of Napoleon crossing the English Channel and subduing the English Parliament. Pierre will awkwardly defend Napoleon at a party where very few else have the same view or would say so aloud and speak about how Napoleon, in his view, towered above the revolution and took what was best about it and is bringing it to the rest of the world. These are ideas such as a man's station in society being able to be determined by his merit, giving people more of a voice in their governance, questioning divine right and the power of kings, the ideals of equality of citizenship and some type of freedom of speech, and a level of liberty for all those serfs regular common people who are the backbone of society. In this way, Pierre is rebelling against the idea of a society of aristocrats ruling the masses. And the irony is, Pierre soon becomes, upon his father's death, an aristocrat who should have the power to be influential in making such changes. Prince Andrei Belkonsky feels similarly 
He has this deep respect for his adversary, and there's almost a magnetic pull towards him to get to the front line and experience this great conflict of the day. Prince André won't get up on his proverbial soapbox at a party and laud Napoleon in front of a hostile audience, but he will present Napoleon's attributes before a more intimate and important audience, namely that of his father, who was one of the great generals of his day serving under Catherine. He's a fictional contemporary of Grigory Potemkin and Alexander Suvorov. General Belkonsky is portrayed as being able to only see the accomplishments of his day. And when Andrei points out how Suvorov had to retreat from Napoleon's forces in the Swiss Alps, it causes his father to throw dishware and argue that Suvorov unfairly had to deal with Austrian bureaucracy. But even General Belkonsky seems to recognize that Napoleon is a force to be reckoned with. The old general lives in the countryside, on a vast estate near Smolensk, a city which will play a critical role of Napoleon's invasion. It's a city with an incredible history, and it's one which wasn't always Russian. As it was previously part of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, as well as the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, Smolensk is located on both banks of the Dnieper River, and it dates back to the 9th century AD. The control of Smolensk would go back and forth between various powers, including Lithuania, Poland, Muscovy, various alliances or new versions of these aforementioned powers. For example, Muscovite power captured it in about 1340 from Lithuania, which had previously captured it from Tatari, or the Tatars, and was recaptured by Lithuania in 1408, taken again by Moscow in 1514, fell to Poland in 1611, and then again was taken by Muscovite powers in 1654. It will be overrun by French forces when Napoleon invades, and the German army also took Smolensk during the Second World War. It is well regarded as on the invasion route if one is heading towards Moscow. Now let's briefly look at some other places where time was allotted in the first 25 chapters. There was time dedicated to the Rostov estate in Moscow, where the patriarch Ilya flied like an eagle on the dance floor, dancing to the Daniel Cooper, and his children acted in accord with their age and station. Nikolai, a blunt and salt-of-the-earth type boy, leaves his educational studies and joins the Hussars which is a light cavalry division, one who would be expected to see action fairly quickly. Though not keen to volunteer information, when asked what he thinks of his country's position, he says they must fight or perish. We will see him grow into a soldier very soon. His younger sister, Natasha, holds the confidence of youth and at her name day celebration impresses her mother. By acting as the young woman of society that she's expected to be, including getting a much larger and older Pierre to dance with her for a spell. And then there's young Peter, or Petya, just a boy, merrily following around his older siblings. He seems light years away from being able to absorb the events that will come. Both Nikolai and Natasha have love interests. Natasha holds a deep affinity for Boris, who for years has grown up in the Rostov household. 
He's a distant relation, something along the lines of second cousin, and is the son of Anna Drubetskaya, who's middle-aged, but referred to as elderly, financially poor, but her ancestors were once from one of the finest families in the country. And Nikolai cares very deeply for Sonia, who's another household member. She's essentially an orphan being raised by the Rostovs. All in this happy quartet are full of energy, love, goodness, and grand hopes for the future. A good deal of the comedic action, to the extent there was any, was early in the book in St. Petersburg, where Pierre got into some trouble with his crew. This included Anatole Kuragin, the notorious youthful playboy, and his friend, the wild gambler, Fedor Dolokhov. After a night of debauchery, where Dolokhov won this fantastic bet, where he dangerously stood out a window on some type of platform and drank a bottle of liquor in a precarious position, as he was cheered on by various acquaintances, including his adversary in the bet, an English sailor. Afterwards, on their way into town, a police officer noticed them and tried to curtail their boorishness. In return, the boys tied a young bear, who was previously dancing around with them, to the police officer and threw them both into the river. They all laughed as the bear and the municipal officer swam for their lives. The stunt got Anatole and Pierre banished for a time, as that would be the heaviest punishment for a noble. Tolstoy himself indulged in gaming, often losing large sums, so he writes about Dolokhov from experience, and he portrays the fiery character as one who usually wins whatever contest he's in. And he's much more of a self-made man than all the characters who inherited their wealth, like Anatole, Pierre, Andrei Belkonsky, and any of the Rostov children. We also get a brief glimpse of Anatole's sister, Elaine Kuragina. She is said to be so beautiful, she turns every head in the room when she enters, as she did in Anna Pavlovna's event which started off the novel. This Anna is a very minor character who serves as an attendant to the Empress. At that time, it was Anna Pavlovna's job to watch Pierre and make sure he didn't disturb the other guests, and way back then, Elaine hardly noticed Pierre existed. But with Pierre now the new Count Bezikov, that will change, as now so many mothers of society are basically lining up their daughters or throwing their daughters in front of Pierre to get his attention. Other characters worthy of mention are Hippolyte Kuragin, brother of Anatole and Elaine. He is fairly quiet and described as dull. His only foray in the story thus far has been to quell the tension caused by Pierre's resounding defense of Napoleon through Hippolyte telling a boring story that nobody could follow. There's also Vera Rostova, who in the eyes of her parents appears to be the unbeloved child. She's the eldest daughter and seems to be the eldest child, even though there are discrepancies with the ages, and she just doesn't seem to fit in. Her siblings give her a nickname that they mean to be insulting, Madame de Jeanly, but perhaps highlights that Tolstoy's view was that Vera was ahead of her time, as Madame de Jeanly was a historical royal tutor in France, a harp virtuoso, 
and a prolific writer, penning a novel over 1,200 pages. She does have a suitor who is not the most dynamic prospect. It is Lieutenant Alphonse Berg, who has an ethnic German background but is a Russian citizen. Since the time of the wars in Germanic lands during the Reformation, there were waves of immigration to Russia, sometimes at the call of the Tsars. They developed little German towns, often with special privileges, but many eventually assimilated into society, even holding various levels of positions in the military. Berg can usually be found talking about himself and his desire to rise in society. He views his position in the military as one where he could advance if a calamity befalls his superior, failing to realize that he would be next in line. He's one of the characters that Tolstoy tries to convey has no substance. And then there's Anna Drubitskaya, who played quite the pivotal role, and she does kind of fade away into the background after this. As referenced, she belonged to one of the older aristocratic families, who had lost prominence. She seems to be poor off financially and involved in some type of lengthy surrogates proceeding. She was childhood friends with Natasha Rostova, and the two remain very close. As a mother, she will go to any length she's able to advance her son Boris, even getting him a position in the Imperial Guard. This was through writing to any contact she thought she had, as well as being quite aggressive when she could corner somebody with influence in a party, like she did with Vasily Kuragin, Anatole and Elaine's father. She begged Vasily to do what he could to move Boris into the guards. And with persistence, Vasily relented, and Natasha Rostova, feeling sympathy for her old friend, gave Anna the money Boris would need for his military supplies, which wasn't provided by the government. Most importantly, Anna Drubetskaya ensured that Count Bezukhov's intentions were followed with regard to the distribution of his vast estate, namely that the overwhelming majority would go to Pierre. Prince Vasily tried to frustrate this by destroying the Count's will, but Anna jumped in and saved the day by essentially grabbing onto the document as one of the Count's nieces, who was aligned with Vasily, tried to steal and destroy it while the Count lay very close by, dying in the final moments of his life. What Tolstoy is subtly exploring, which was based on his military service during the Crimean War was what on the individual level drives men off full of determination, vigor, and what we would call patriotism to so eagerly march to a front line and kill one's fellow man. Keep in mind that Tolstoy's experiences both in war and his dedication to writing and philosophy eventually led him to renounce the state religion of Russian Orthodoxy and become a pacifist, modeled on Jesus' teachings and language in the New Testament. And that, my friends, will do it for the recitation on Book 1, Part 1.